In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, we read these these words starting in verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, now this is the one we call John the Baptist, the, the herald of Christ, the one who had prepared the way for him and declared him as the Messiah. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? What do you make of the fact that the one that Jesus called great now seems to be questioning his faith? Most scholars believe that John was going through a dark night of the soul, a season of doubt, that he was having literally a crisis of faith. Now, today, we often in our culture call that deconstruction. Deconstruction of faith is happening in a large scale in our culture. If you Googled it, Google it, you'll be staggered by how many people, old and young, are talking about deconstructing their faith. But exactly what do we mean by that? What do people mean by this word deconstruction? Well, if you go back to the 1960s, there was a French existentialist philosopher named Jacques Derrida who used the word deconstruction. Derrida lived about 74 years. He lived until... Uh, 2004, actually. And so he, he talked about this, and this word has gotten adopted into the mainstream of our culture. Now, frustratingly, and this is pretty typical of philosophers, he never really defined clearly what he meant by that. So that's a part of the confusion. Now, Christian experiences of deconstruction are often very multifaceted, and they're very painful. So here's a working definition that I'm gonna be using in this brief little mini-series. Deconstruction is a critical questioning or dismantling of one's beliefs about what it means to be a Christian. That can go on for weeks, it can go on for months, it can go on literally for years where you're critically questioning and deconstructing, dismantling your beliefs about what it means to be a Christian. Just as a demolition crew can deconstruct or demolish a building in much the same way we can do that with our belief systems. Now, I'm calling this message the agony of deconstruction. Because for those who are going through it, it often feels like life and death. The wind has been knocked out of you. Your most cherished beliefs are kind of hanging in the balance. And you're reconsidering all of this. And often it's just, I mean, it throws you into this crisis in life. So, I've had two of those in my own life. One was when I was a 17-year-old freshman in college, 
And the other one was six years later when I was almost finished with a divinity degree in seminary. And I want to tell you, in those experiences, particularly in the first one, I literally stayed awake at night not being able to sleep. It went on for months and months and months where I wondered, will I come out of this still hanging on to faith and belief in God? Will I come out still hanging on to faith in Christ as the Savior? So I I want you to go on this journey with me, and I want you to consider four things you need to know about deconstruction. Four things you need to know. Now, in this first one, I'm gonna spend a, quite a bit more time on it than I will the other, so don't panic. At the end of the first, don't go, oh my gosh, he's only done one point. We won't be here all day, but I am gonna spend more time on this first one, okay? But deconstruction often happens, number one, when you have difficulty reconciling your Christian beliefs with new information and truth claims that are coming your way. Now, my college season of deconstruction, I would put into this category. So here's the truth. My Sunday school faith as a 17-year-old had simply, this is the only way I can say it, it had just not prepared me for the challenge I was facing in the college classroom. I had been a Christian for four years, since the age of 13, and even though I was a serious Christian, I had never heard anyone seriously challenge the Bible or Christian beliefs. No, I'd, I'd heard snide comments. I'd heard sarcasm. I certainly had members of my own family. I had friends who were not believers. But until college, I had never been barraged with truth claims that I had no answers for. Now, one of them was that God created the universe. I mean, come on. Hasn't science disproven that? I mean, how do we know that time plus matter plus chance didn't just do a little dance and we evolved to this with no God involved in that at all? Why do we really need God? I had serious questions about God as creator. I mean, uh, uh, another one I had a problem with was authority of scripture. I mean, come on. (laughs) Don't we know better? I mean, are we really going to build our lives on an ancient book, especially with all the weird stories in it? All the violence that is portrayed there? I mean, how can we really believe this is God's word? I mean, don't we know better today? As I had a guy say in my office just a few years ago who was, who was definitely an atheist and he just wanted to chat with me about belief in God, he said, I know a lot more than Jesus. I said, oh, really? That's, that's a quote. I know a lot more than Jesus. Well, I, I, I at that time was wondering, don't we know more than they knew? And then here was a big one for me in college, the bodily resurrection. I mean, I'd been around life and death a lot, particularly with animals. I've never seen anybody come back to life. I mean, have you? Have have you ever seen anybody die and then come back to life? I mean, 
maybe G this is the first time I've been exposed to Rudolf Bultmann and his demythologization of the New Testament, where we strip the myth away and get down to whatever kernel of truth might be left. And, and, and as Bultmann said, maybe Jesus was just raised in the hearts of the believers. Oh, they knew he was dead, but they were so bummed about it. Maybe they just said, well, let's not let him die. Let's just go out of here and live as though he were still alive. And they went out of that upper room and they just turned the world upside down with that resolution. Now, today, today, I could give reasoned responses to all of those objections and critiques, but my Sunday school faith had not prepared me for the hard questions that were coming my way. Now, in today's world, you don't need to go to college or university to have your faith jolted. All you got to do is click on your computer, and you can have the most eloquent critics on the planet giving their spin on why Christianity is simply not feasible and their version of why it's just not true. So more than any other day ever as Christians, I believe it's paramount that we be able to give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So that's one time you tend to deconstruct. You've got truth claims coming at you. You just can't reconcile them. But second, we tend to reconstruct when you're disillusioned with professing Christians who are blatantly hypocritical. You ever met a Christian who was hypocritical? Huh? One of the things that's caused an avalanche of deconstruction over the past five years is how many highly visible Christian leaders and ministries have been exposed for hypocrisy. The podcast series, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, has been listened to by millions, and it exposed the systemic abuse of authority by Mark Driscoll and other leaders at Mars Hill in Seattle. But before that, you had the revelations about Bill Hybels and his predatory behavior, and this supremely respected Christian leader, it was revealed, was found to be living in blatant contradiction to many of the values he prescribed for others. And then came the implosion of James McDonald at Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. And then the revelations about Robbie Zacharias. And then the news about the celebrity pastor Carl Lentz down in New York City who was hanging out with Justin Bieber. And it was found that he had a, an adulterous fair on the side. It probably wasn't the first. And then most recently, the miniseries of Hillsong, a mega church exposed. And the list just goes on and on and on. Now, my purpose right now is not to comment on any of these sad situations, but simply to say, if our job is to represent Jesus well to the world, we've not been doing so well with that. And when people see leaders living hypocritically, they conclude, well, maybe it's all just a farce. Now, let's be clear. Everyone is hypocritical. I hope you know that. I've tried to say that over and over and over again. I say I value health and I work out and I do that, 
but I can down a pint of Ben and Jerry's in like five minutes and then crave another one that night, okay? I am a stinking hypocrite when it comes to that. And even though I say I believe in the power of prayer, and I do, and even though I can report to you with honesty that I have prayed more these days than I've ever prayed in all my years as a Christian, still, I spend more hours binging Netflix than I do on my knees in prayer. I am a stinking hypocrite. Now, we kind of chuckle at each other with examples like that, go, well, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of the same way, and we think that's no, a no big deal, but hear me. If Christian leaders who've hammered ethical values in their messages blatantly and repeatedly violate the same values in their personal lives, I don't blame people for being cynical. Here's what they reason. If it ain't working for the leaders, maybe this whole thing is just a farce. And so deconstruction is nothing new, folks. It's been happening for 2,000 years. But it has accelerated in our day more than any time that personally I can remember. Third, deconstruction often happens when you are disappointed with God. You're disappointed with God. My seminary season of deconstruction was really more about that. I was deeply disappointed in God. Here was the question. Does God really care about me, about me personally? Does he really answer my prayers? Because, boy, it seemed like my prayers weren't getting beyond the ceiling of my dorm room in seminary. And so I began to have a massive pity party. I began to compare my situation with that of a guy I'd gone to high school with. Now, I'll call him John, not his real name, but because he's still alive and all that, I'll try to protect his identity a little bit and call him John. John and I were in the same grade in school. And we were both kind of popular and respected in our high school, but for different reasons. Yeah, we were both athletic. John was the starting quarterback on our high school football team. I was the starting point guard on our high school basketball team. But it wasn't that that we were respected for. I was respected among a community of faith because as a teenager, I was already preaching a lot in the area and I was kind of an unashamed Christian and well-known for representing Jesus. John, on the other hand, was respected as a party animal, okay? John just lived for the weekend to indulge in whatever debauchery or pleasure he had in mind. Now, it all changed when John went to college. We went to different colleges. We didn't go to the same college, but... Boy, he was gloriously saved. I mean, the old was gone, the new had come. He got involved in a leading local church in his area. And in a short amount of time, because he was growing so much and he was a natural leader, they made him the youth pastor at the church. As a student, doing this part-time, they were paying him $30,000 a year. Now, that was a lot of money then, and that was 10 excuse me, that was 10 times more money than I had ever made in a year. And that was his salary. 10 times more money than I had ever earned 
in a year. And he told me, do you guys know what a Pentecostal handshake is? That, that's it's an old saying where somebody walks up to you and shakes your hand and they've got a dollar bill in there or a $20 bill in there. And they bless you with some money. It's called a Pentecostal handshake. I had a conversation with John, and John told me that every time I turn around, somebody's slipping a $50 bill in my hand just because they were so excited about John's newfound faith in Christ. Now, that's what was going on with him. At the same time, I'm a seminary student in Louisville. It's 1984. I'm lonely. There's virtually no one on campus. There were literally only three of us on third floor Sampy dorm that summer. You're just not, it's a ghost town. I'm sick of school. I'm sick of life. And to make a living, I'm delivering pizza for Mr. Gaddy's Pizza in Louisville in my 1972 Ford Maverick with no air conditioner. And it is a sweltering summer in Louisville. Every time I got a couple hundred dollars in my bank account, somehow my car would find out about it <laughs> and tear up. I had so little money, and I've told you this before, I know. I was literally eating the pizza that families left behind as I would bust tables in between deliveries. And in my disappointment, I started crying out to God, really complaining to God, God, where was John when I was serving you back in high school? I witnessed to John back then. He mocked you back then. But now, his life looks far better than mine. God, is this the way you treat your friends? No wonder you don't have too many these days. That's literally the way I felt. And just when I was at my lowest, one of my sisters, bless her heart, she was just trying to keep me in the loop, she sent me a letter, and inside of it was a newspaper clipping from the local paper with John and Miss Alabama. It was their engagement picture. John was gonna marry Miss Alabama. That's more than I could take. And they look so beautiful together. I literally, true story, tacked their picture up on the bulletin board on third floor Sampy. And I wrote a cynical comment across it. Is there really any justice in this world? And that is exactly the way I felt. I was struggling with this. Does God really care about me? It sure didn't feel like it. Boy, I was so disappointed in God. And folks, I kid you not, it was such a serious season of deconstructing of my faith. I mean, I was in a dark place. I was wondering if morality mattered at all. I, I, I was that close to chucking it all, to quitting seminary, even though I was one year from graduation, to just quitting Christianity, and here's what I was gonna do. I was gonna go to law school and become an attorney and make boatloads of money. Because my disappointment with God was causing me to deconstruct my faith. Now, I don't know for sure, but I believe John the Baptist in our story today has this disappointment that God is not acting the way he thinks God should act. 
And think about it. John was in prison, confined to this dark dungeon, and he didn't deserve to be there. You know what his crime was? His only crime was that he courageously spoke out against the immoral living of King Herod. And no doubt, he said to God, God, is this your great purpose for me? I mean, come on. God, if Jesus has come to set the captives free, then why not me? Why is he not freeing me right now? Why do I have to fight these cockroaches and rats in this hole in the ground, God? Is this the way you repay me for faithfulness? Now listen, when you're going through unpleasant circumstances, and some of you really are right now, or when people who've mocked God in your, in your life, and your experience, are making money by the boatloads, it's easy for you to slip into a dark night of the soul when you're struggling just to make ends meet. But these are some of the main reasons that people deconstruct faith. The second thing we need to know about deconstruction is that it happens with people at all places on the maturity spectrum, okay? If you're sitting there thinking, well, Pastor Rex, surely a mature believer would never doubt God. I think you need to deconstruct that thought right there. John the Baptist was a giant of spiritual maturity. Do you know what Jesus said about him in Matthew 11, verse 11, he said, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, now that kind of covers the waterfront, doesn't it? <laughs> Any Martians here today? Any, anybody not born of a woman? I mean, that, that kind of covers it right there. Among those born of women, there's never risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. When you got Jesus giving you props like that, I mean, that's legit. John was no novice believer, and yet he went through this dark night of the soul. He was a humble servant of God. You remember John 1, when he first saw Jesus coming at him, he said, whoa, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is a bold declaration. He is certain at that point that this is the long-awaited Messiah, and he courageously trumpets that truth. But it gets even better. Later in his ministry, as Jesus' popularity is growing, John's disciples come to him and say, uh, yo, yo, John, hey, uh, your, your popularity is decreasing, man. You need to know that. We need a new marketing strategy for you because everybody seems to be going to Jesus here. Look at how impressive his response is. This is John 3. To this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. What a mature response this is. 
and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The point, this is a mature, seasoned, well-adjusted man of faith, and now he's in this season of doubt and deconstruction. It can happen to people all over the maturity spectrum. Now, among those famous evangelicals who have deconstructed are people like Joshua Harris of I Kiss Dating Goodbye fame. Remember him? When dating was going to be a thing of the past and we were all going to go to courting, you know? Remember that? Deconstructed. Would not call himself a Christian. Kevin Max of DC Talk. At the time, the most popular Christian group on the planet. Bart Campolo, the son of famous teacher, leader, speaker, Anthony Campolo. Jim Dethmer, one that not many of you may know, but a church planter in Baltimore. Later, a staff person at Willow Creek would no longer claim to be a Christian at all. Rob Bell of Love Wins, former evangelical megachurch pastor. Chuck Templeton, former colleague of Billy Graham's. I could add dozens of people to this list who were Christian pastors or leaders who have deconstructed their faith and come to very different conclusions than they used to believe. Now, if you ask them, some of these people, some would say, oh, I'm still rooted in Christ. Oh, Jesus is still very special to me. But if you probe a little bit and examine what they truly believe, it's often far removed from biblical, historical Christian faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Third, I really want you to hear this part. Some deconstruction needs to happen. Some deconstruction needs to happen. In one of the final episodes, I think it's the one called Aftermath, of the rise and fall of Mars Hill, the respected leader, Paul Tripp, says, and I'm going to quote him now, we should all be deconstructing our faith. We better do it because our faith becomes a culture, a culture so webbed into the purity of truth that it's hard to separate the two. And we better do some deconstructing or we're going to find ourselves again and again in these sad Places. Now, what is he talking about? Paul Tripp is not talking there about deconstructing these kinds of things. He's talking about the cultural accretions, the additives that get added on to Christianity and redefine it or deform it in significant ways. He's saying we need to deconstruct those. And I hope you're listening we really do. I thought about doing a whole message just on this, but I thought, no, nah, that would sound awfully negative. I'd come across as a crotchety old codger if I did that. So I'm just going to mention three that kind of bother me a lot. Three common situations that are really, really out there where we need some appropriate deconstruction. One is extreme legalism. 
Now, many of us came to faith in Christ in a cultural situation where we really heard the gospel, the real gospel, and we trusted in Jesus and we were gloriously saved, but we were taught you don't smoke, drink, chew, run with girls who do, right? And women can't cut their hair, and women can't wear slacks, and you gotta play in this little tight sandbox, and you can't go to Disney World because it's really evile. And you can't go to the cinema ever. You can't, well, because you get contaminated there. And so you've got this really tight little sim. And men, you got to cut your hair short all the time. It's got to be a military buzz cut or you're dishonoring God and on and on and on. If that's you, it's time to deconstruct. Because you got a lot of freedoms in Christ and that little tight cultural package that was presented to you. And you may, as a new believer, you don't know the difference. You can't separate what is really important and biblical from what is just the cultural package that it got delivered to you in. But it's time to deconstruct if these things were a part of the cultural package that you received when you received Christ. The second area of deconstruction that is really needed is the prosperity gospel, okay? I'll try to hold back here, all right? Pray for me. Now, there are legitimate, trust me, legitimate prosperity themes in Scripture. Amen, hallelujah, praise God. I'm so happy for those I love those prosperity themes in the Bible. Wonderful. But if you were taught that God is your cosmic genie in a box and he exists to make you always happy, always healthy, always wealthy. Now watch this. And if he doesn't, God has failed. It's time to deconstruct. I've watched the prosperity gospel for decades now. I've had a front row seat to these teachings. And I'll tell you, it leaves in its wake a huge swath of disillusioned believers. That when God did not heal their loved one who had terminal cancer, they didn't just go away from that disappointed and bummed out. They went away thinking, Maybe God doesn't exist because they were taught, they were taught that this is what God is for, to make you always healthy, always wealthy, always happy. And when it doesn't work on the road test of life, they give up on God all the time. I could introduce you to scores of people I know who've completely chucked the baby with the bathwater. Folks, it's a problem. And yet you hear it every day on the radio, every day on TV, every day on your computer. And so we've got to be able to differentiate between what is appropriate biblical themes of prosperity and what is a distorted package. I'm going to mention just one more, and that is Christian nationalism, okay? Some Christians came to faith in a context where the kingdom of God and the United States of America are essentially the same. 
That God loves you at the U.S. more than he loves any other nation. He loves Americans more than he loves any other people, for God's sake. And the kingdom of God rises or falls on the fortunes of the USA. Okay? So, speaking as a person who deeply appreciates my country and all the opportunities it has afforded me, I want to challenge you here if this is you. If you get more misty-eyed over the Star-Spangled Banner than you do over the old rugged cross, we got a problem. If you, if you, get, if you get more choked up over my country, tis of thee, than you do a mighty fortress is our God, Houston, we got a problem. And it may just be that you've made an idol out of your country. It is, trust me, it is possible to be appropriately patriotic without making an idol out of your nation. But I fear that many wonderful Christians have literally made an idol out of the U.S. Now, here's the good news. Every time we crack open our Bible, every time a small group leader leads a Bible study, every time a biblically faithful sermon is preached, some deconstructing hopefully is going on. Here's what I mean. Oh, wow, I hadn't understood that clearly. Thank you, leader. Thank you, small group leader. Thank you, mentor, for clearing that up for me. I just did a little micro deconstruction there. That should be happening all the time. That's all a part of sanctification. That's all a part of growing into the image of Christ. That's all a part of sloughing off and getting rid of some of the cultural baggage that is not really central to the Christian faith. I hope that's happening with all of us, all right? Now, right now, some of you are like deer in headlights. Oh, my God, is that me? Is that me? Take a chill pill. We all need to be doing some appropriate deconstructing. Well, one final word as we close. One final word. That is that <laughs> deconstruction doesn't have to lead to deconversion. Now, by deconversion, I'm not making a soteriological statement here. I'm not commenting about can you lose faith or not. I'm, not getting I'm simply using a phrase that is commonly used in this deconstruction conversation. And what I mean by that is, one thing is for sure, you definitely had a lot of, have a lot of people who once claimed to be Christians who are no longer claiming to be Christians. And some of them had a lot of the fruit of Christianity in their lives, and some of them were Christian leaders. But hear me, some of the strongest Christians I know have come through serious seasons of deconstruction and are stronger because of it. In fact, it may shock you, but I thank God for those deep seasons I went through as painful as they were. Because I think, in fact I know, it's given me a lot more understanding and compassion with people who are having serious struggles with belief. And folks, I'm, I mean, it's so common and I've done it so much, I'm actually shocked with people who've never had a season like that. 
I go, man, are you, are you like exposing? Are you living in a cave? I mean, most Christians I know have gone through some seasons of doubt. So next week, we're going to turn the page, and I want to talk to you about the hope of reconstructing, because I, for one, am living proof it's that close in my own mind from chucking it all. I'm living proof that you can get through it and still hang on to orthodox faith. And here's the thing I want. I want Grace Fellowship to be a place where people can bring their doubts and discuss them. Right? Oh, good. I'm glad, I'm glad you feel the same thing because I thought you might go, no, we don't want any doubters in here. Woo! No, we, we want people to be able to bring their doubts. I want this to be a place where people are not shamed because they have doubts. A place where they can say, I, I do believe, but help my unbelief, right? Like the guy in the Bible. Now, I'm impressed by the fact, I'm so impressed by this, that, that Jesus didn't shame John the Baptist. When these guys came and said, hey, he wants to know the answer to the, you go back and tell that John, I'm so disappointed in him. Doesn't he know real disciples never have doubts? Jesus said nothing of the sort. He said, go back and report to John what you see, see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And blessed is the man or woman who does not fall away on account of me. Just let the evidence speak. Go back, share the facts, let John be faced with it at the evidence, and then let him make a decision for himself about who I really am. This is gonna be a great journey. Be here next week as we talk about the hope of reconstructing. Father, you're so good. Thank you that even when we're in a dark night of the soul with serious doubts, not knowing the way out, thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. You're right there with us every step of the way. And my prayer, especially is for those who are struggling today, this is their dark night of the soul. I get it. It's very real. And it is agonizing. Father, would you, would you let them know? Would you let them know in your own special way, I'm here. I have not abandoned you, and you're gonna get through this by my grace. In Jesus' name, amen.